Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Priest Forever, the podcast for the Vocations Office of the Diocese of Bridgeport. We're so happy that you can join us. We hope that you have been finding our, our podcast fruitful for you, fruitful in your life, in your discernment of God's will in your life, and your growing in knowledge and love of our priesthood and of our priests. And so we're happy to have as our guest today, Father Sean Calaisi. Uh, Father Sean is the pastor of Holy Family in St. Emery Parish in Fairfield, Connecticut. And uh, we will find out certainly a little bit more about his journey uh, to serving as the pastor at what is my family's um, home parish in the diocese, my, my grandparents' parish, uh, where my grandmother still faithfully attends uh, the uh, Saturday evening mass. And so we're happy to welcome Father Sean. Welcome, Father. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent. Good. I, you know, I, I have to laugh, first of all, because you have this, this really magnificent background, right? You have this, this, this perfect kind of video call background with a beautiful wooden bookshelf, with beautiful statues, with books and all of these things. And it's so hard not to notice and point out that over your right shoulder is a rubber duck. <laughs> <laughs> that is Cardinal Quackers. <laughs> Cardinal oh, excellent. Okay. Yes, Cardinal Quackers. Excellent. All right. You know, at, at some point, and I don't know if this is the right time or not, or maybe it factors into the into your life story at a different point. But I think we need to at some point learn the origin and the meaning of Cardinal Quackers, because I am seeing now that there is a yes, there is a little red Beretta yes. <laughs> on the duck's head. And I did not notice that until you said Cardinal Quackers. Yep. So I look forward to hearing about that uh, at some point uh, during our during our conversation. But welcome. So, you know, Father Sean, again, you know, here you are. You have been how long have you been ordained? Going on 14 years this May. I was ordained May 16, 2009. Excellent. Excellent. So um, but that's not been your whole life, clearly. Uh, so why don't you begin? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, about, you know, where you come from, about, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are. So my family comes from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and that's where I grew up. Uh, my family was always very faithful. So my dad and my dad worked for the church first, and then my mother worked as a catechist later on when I was a little bit older. So growing up, I was born in 1980, um, and my mother had a freak accident, and she stepped off her bike, and she ended up breaking her knee and her leg. And the doctor said she would never have a walk again. So from my early childhood, my mom was confined to a wheelchair until I was about eight years old. And then over lots of physical therapy, she was able to uh, walk again with limited mobility. And then she worked in the church. So my parents were always brought us up Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I made my first communion in 1988. And that's when I kind of fell in love with the church. Um, I have one brother. He's a firefighter for Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Uh, okay. My dad is a cognitive craftsman. You, co you commented about my bookshelf behind me. That was my ordination gift from my father. Wow. So wow, luckily... Every parish that I've been in, I've either had a long wall, either in my residence or in my office, that I can keep it as one unit. Wow. So, yeah, he made that for me as my ordination gift because he's a—he's actually a journeyman by trade. So, okay. yeah, that's wonderful. So you, so okay, so growing up in Rhode Island, I think explains um, the accent that <laughs> you're going to hear. Throughout this thing, in fact, you already—I think you—you you're, you're, said your brother's a firefighter. Where is it? Woonsocket. Yeah, Woonsocket. 
Well, okay, because even that we say a little bit different. I, my familiarity with Woonsocket comes from that's where the, the regional warehouse is for CVS. And so during my days working at CVS Pharmacy, that is where, uh, for those of you who are wondering, if you go to a CVS in Connecticut, they are serviced by the warehouse. In, in Can you say it for me again in the, in the correct accent? Woonsocket. Woonsocket, okay. So, <laughs> all right, so... But that had to be, I feel like growing up in, in Rhode Island is because it's interesting for most people from Connecticut, from Fairfield County, Rhode Island is a place you go on vacation. Uh, so, so talk to me a little bit more about that. What was, what was life like uh, growing up in Rhode Island? It was awesome. I lived in Pawtucket, which is most of you here in Connecticut would say Pawtucket, but it's Pawtucket. Um uh, right on the border of Attleboro, Massachusetts. So I'm not really near the beaches, but you know Rhode Island's very small as everyone keeps making fun of it. So the beaches on either direction, either South County or in Bristol, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, sorry, is about, you know, half hour to 45 minutes away, an hour away. So mm-hmm. I was more landlocked, but I would go to the, to the um, when I was old and I had a car, I would go to the ocean quite regularly at night when it was closed to walk the beach because I love yeah. walking in nature and just brought a lot of prayer when I was there because I love the water. And that's one thing I kind of miss about here is because it's only Long Island Sound until you get to like New London area, but it's okay. It's still beautiful. Sherwood Island, uh, uh, Seaside Park, you know. Well, and, and, and personally, I have to step in and, and defend a little bit, you know, Jennings Beach. And, Jennings Beach and is nice. Yes, yeah, so I'll give you that. There, right. But I think what's what's also really wonderful about about what you just said is, um, ironically, you just gave us the the priesthood equivalent of I like to take long walks on the beach. On the <laughs> <laughs> I guess right? I did. <laughs> so now now one of the other things that Pawtucket is that, is that how you say it? Pawtucket? Is that correct? Is it better? Yeah. OK, mm-hmm. that, that I know Pawtucket for is I believe they have a minor league baseball team. Or did for a long time the Pawtucket Red Sox, one of the, the affiliates of the Boston Red Sox. So, um, you know, little kid Sean Calazzi growing up in the 80s and 90s and, you know, all the, those kinds of things. Were you a baseball player? Were you a soccer? What was what was your life kind of as a kid? I'm just curious. I just, you know. I actually didn't play any sports because I wasn't coordinated enough. Okay. It wasn't until I was in sixth grade that my parents asked me if I wanted to join the midget CYO basketball league. And I did. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother was the football player and the volleyball player. Sometimes I would play volleyball, but never for sports. So basically it was just basketball was the only thing that was a team sport, but on the yeah. fields, I would play kickball. I like kickball and bowling, but never was part of a team. Yeah. Um, growing up basically from age six years old until I was 21, I ended up going to a day camp that I obviously later worked at. Yep. You know, I went there until I was six years old, till I was 14, and then 15, I became a counselor. So it was a summer camp run by the Boys and Girls Club of Pawtucket, and when I was in mm-hmm. with Maths. Um, that was a great camp. It was 200 acres. They had everything from archery. So I grew up there every summer for eight weeks, mm-hmm. and that was a great experience, you know, because I had a lot of good stuff. Um, yep. But sports, I just never was coordinated enough. Sure. But I then became in high school a lifeguard, so I enjoyed swimming, but never was part of a swim team or anything. You know. Okay. So what what were so what were your some of uh, some of your other hobbies and things that that you liked to do when you were growing up? I liked collecting stamps and coins and baseball cards. Interesting. Those are the three primary things that I would do, and I would just hang out outside. 
we didn't really have friends over and stuff like that. My brother and I uh, never really grew up with people hanging out at our houses very much. Mm -hmm. So yep. to me, that was something foreign. So I would just be outside playing by myself and sometimes sure. the neighbor's kids. But generally speaking, it was just me doing things that I wanted to do. What is and, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna ask for each of the three categories: stamp, coin, baseball card. What is the best? The whether it's the most, however you want to define it, whether it's the most objectively valuable or the one that you are going after for some personal reason. What is the best of each of those that you have that you were ever able to to actually get your hands on and put into your collection? I have some silver coins from the 40s before and 50s before they started mixing it up with the uh, copper. Mm -hmm. Those are rare for me because they're hard to come by now. Right. So as a little kid, having pure silver coins, because when you drop them, they sound different. Yeah, sure. You know, and they feel different, too. So yeah. for me, that was something new. As for stamps, I don't have very many. Uh, it would be just stamps that people had given me. Mm -hmm. from my dad when he was working at the carpentry shop or guy was an avid stamp collector and periodically he would just start giving out his stamp collection. So I ended up inheriting a lot of his stuff, but that was so long ago. I don't remember if I have any really good ones. Sure. And as for baseball cards, I remember growing up, I was probably about nine years old, maybe 10. And a priest friend of mine who is, uh, was there as parochial vicar and the CYO chaplain, which was across the street from my home parish, gave me a baseball card from the 60s. Wasn't worth a lot probably then because it was not something that was, he wouldn't give me something that was really good. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is that I had a card from the 60s, which was awesome because all my cards are from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. You know, so to have something that old was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty, that's, do you remember who the player was? I don't. Don't, because you, you never know. Maybe, maybe it was someone who became a, a Hall of Famer. It could be worth more now than it was when he gave it to me. That's for sure. You know, a, a Thurman Munson rookie card or something like that. Kyle <laughs> Yuskemski. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Rhode Island. I get it. You know, <laughs> it's fine. You know, we'll, we'll go with we'll go with the Red Sox players there. No, that's great. But I think, and that actually, I think is is a pretty good you know segue because as you said, you know, that was a priest who gave you that that wonderful gift, that that memorable gift, and. And, and certainly, you know, from your parents being involved in the church and you're uh, eventually becoming part of, of CYO, clearly the church played um, a significant role in your life. And you talked a little bit about your experience, you know, receiving First Communion. So talk to us a little bit more about that, about, OK, so, you know, young Sean is, you know, living in Rhode Island and he's lifeguarding and he's collecting stamps and, and coins and, and all of these other things. And he's hanging out at everywhere else except his own house. So... Where does Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with, you know, life in the church, where does that really kind of break in uh, to all that and become, you know, a real tangible and an and important part of your life? This is probably going to sound very strange, but it happened right after I made my first communion. Something clicked in me after my first communion. Like I said, that my mom was handicapped. So my meme, my grandmother lived upstairs because she was the one who was taking care of me. So she was my second mother. Yeah. So I remember after my first communion, something clicked. Now, I didn't, obviously at eight years old, I didn't know what it meant to be a priest, but that desire came very full into my mind and my heart. Like I couldn't shake. It was like, wow, I want to do that. 
I don't know what it is, but I want to do that. I was just drawn to it. And I was actually very shy. Might not think that now, but I was shy when I was little. And my yeah. so much to the point that my parents were shocked that I asked to become an altar boy. Because at that point, we didn't have altar girls yet. This was 1988. Yeah. So they were my associate, the associate pastor there, who we call parochial vicars here, would made an announcement that we're looking for more altar boys. So I signed up and I began serving. And then by the time I was 10 years old, I was serving every single mass. Wow. And then that pastor, Father John McElroy, who died the oldest pastor, the oldest priest in the Diocese of Providence two years ago, wow. at 95 years old or 96 years old, kind of was my mentor indirectly. He never really said much to me about the priesthood, but he would always ask when I was going into seminary and whatnot and things. And he was just always a support, even though quiet. When he retired, he still stayed in the rectory and helped serve masses. And the new pastor came in and then changing hands with altar boys and stuff like that. So I became the head altar boy at 11 years old with a key to the church. And I started training all the servers. Wow. And then around 92 is when... JP2 kind of released to have altar girls officially. So then we had altar girls, but that's what I was doing. So I was serving every single mass from that time on. on. Wow. And then when I was 14 years old, I started working at the CYO center as a gatekeeper, collecting money for the games, the basketball yep. games in between me playing and doing that. Um, and then at age 16, when I made my confirmation, I became a catechist and I taught sixth grade for, for, a few years before I left to go to seminary. So for me, the church was very active. My dad was what then was called a sexton. He would mm -hmm. unlock the church, take care of the candles. We had seat money. I don't know if any of you guys know what seat money is, but you used to put a quarter to sit down in the pew. Really? Before you entered in. So that's how long ago this was. Wow. Yeah. So in Rhode Island, you would pay a quarter to sit in the church in the pew. No wonder you collected coins. <laughs> 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 You're serving every mass. It probably added up after a while. <laughs> yep. So seat money. It's kind of funny. I guess Connecticut may never had that, but I'd be curious to ask like your grandparent, your grandmother, if she remembers yeah. that the church have seat money. I should ask her when I see her on Saturday. Do you remember yeah. when your family did seat money? Yeah, I would be, you know, it's, yeah. Or if she, you know, cause so my, my grandmother uh, grew up in New Jersey and so it would be interesting, you know, too, to see, okay, maybe they, whether they did it here or not, maybe they did it in Jersey and it just never made its way to, to Fairfield County or something. But the, I, I'd be, I'd be curious. You let me know what she says. <laughs> I'll let you ask. And then you can let me know what she says. <laughs> oh, no, that's wonderful. But, so, you know, I, and that, I think that's such a gift that, that we, um, we, we sometimes take for granted. I think this ability to, to serve at the altar as young people, uh, and to really have a, an active, you know, participation in that sense in mass, right? You know, obviously we want to have an interior participation, but you know, as a young person, right, to go from just kind of sitting in the back pew or, and you know, kind of fumbling around to, you know, no, I need to, I, I need to be present. I need to be part of this. It's you know, it's, it certainly was a part of my my story. Um, and, you know, obviously was an important part of yours. I mean, at 11 years old to have a key to the church and to be, you know, training all the other altar servers. And, you know, now you're a pastor, you know, my, how far you've fallen. 
uh, no, I, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, it sounds like, and unless I'm mistaken, so seminary and the, the thought of a vocation to the priesthood entered your life, you know, pretty early on. Um, so how did you make, what was, what did that discernment look like? When, how did that become a real active part of, of your, your prayer and your discernment and, and ultimately make the decision to enter seminary? So when I was in sixth grade, the Bishop of Providence, Bishop Jelano, had sent a letter to all of the altar boys saying that was around the time he started thinking about the priesthood and invited us to go to Our Lady of Providence Seminary in Providence for a day, uh, you know, have lunch and dinner and just hang out at the seminary for a day and have some talks. Sort of like the old St. Andrew's dinner um, and grow bodies. But it went deeper than that because it actually, when I was in high school, went to weekend. So as soon as I received, this is how this happened. It's kind of funny because I was, my parents never knew I wanted to be a priest. I never told them. I only told my grandmother. Anytime anyone else said it, I would kind of change the subject, even though my parents knew. My parents yeah. knew, but they were quiet supporters. I actually kind of wish they were more blunt with it and saying it's okay, make it a lot easier. So anyway, yeah. six years old, the, the letter was addressed to me, and there was a card in there with, saying, would you like more information, and would you like to come to the seminary for the, the retreat, the day retreat? So I signed it and sent it. It was a pre-posted page thing. Now, not realizing, hmm, obviously the response was going to go to, to the parents of Sean Khaleesi. So they received the the invitation that I said yes to and said, so they called me in the kitchen and said, Sean, what's this? I said, oh, what, what? I don't know. My pastor must have put my name in, which wasn't truly a lie because he actually did put my name in first. But right. that's how I knew I was a server. So I just piggyback on that. So my parents said, well, go. It's a free meal. So from sixth grade on, every single year, I went to the seminary for a day. Wow. And then when I was in high school, a freshman in high school, it became overnights. Mm-hmm. So for the four years, it would be a three-day weekend, Friday, Saturday, and you come back home on Sunday. And I kept yep. doing it. So then from that time on, that kind of just solidified, yeah, more and more, this is what I want. You know, this is what I want. And then it wasn't until 2000 when I, one of my friends, who is a religious sister mm-hmm. for the Franciscan Martyrs of St. George, was at Steubenville before I was. We grew up together, and she was a year behind me at, at in high school. And I went to the community college of Rhode Island first before I went to a real college, you know, a four-year college, that is. Community college is real, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. And then she sent me a handwritten note while she was praying in the chapel, the Puetzinuncula, which is a 24 adoration chapel, said, you need to come here. They have a program for priestly formation. Then it was called mm-hmm. the Pre-Theologate Program. But that wasn't in line with the new PPF, the revised one. So now it's called the Priestly Formation Program. Mm-hmm. And she said, you should come here because you don't need to have sponsorship from a diocese or religious order. You can get accepted to the program via the university. So I applied and I got accepted. And that's when the real hardcore decisions discernment started happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's actually how I ended up getting to the Diocese of Bridgeport because I was in the pipeline for Providence. Um, yep. They didn't want. They wouldn't allow me to study at Franciscan as a seminary for Providence, and there was also other things there too. I have learning disabilities, and at that point, I had ADD, okay. um, so that was kind of played into the situation as well. Mm-hmm. So Monsignor Chris Walsh, then Father Chris Walsh, was a vocation director, and every year, Steubenville had a vocation fair. Mm-hmm. So there are only few dioceses represented 
the rest were religious orders, mm-hmm. men and women. So it was only a few dioceses that were represented. So that made it kind of unique because they were heavily focused on religious over diocesan life. So mm-hmm. Providence was uh, Providence was not there, but Bridgeport was. And I'm looking at the board, vocation board. I'm looking at it. I'm saying, wow, huh? There are some of the themes that are on that board that I'm getting in my own prayer life. Could this mm-hmm. be something? So at that point, we actually had a seminarian who was originally from Rhode Island also in the program okay. for us here, but was allowed to study there. And he was talking to me about Bridgeport, but nothing connected or clicked. And then yeah. the Monsignor Chris gave me his business card and said, hey, why don't you come out to eat tonight with us? So he took out some of the Connecticut guys that were there, plus that seminarian who I don't remember his name because he left. Um and then afterwards, he gave me his business card and said, hey, whatever God's will is, be it done, you know. Mm. So I said, all right, Lord, I have peace. Is this where you want me to go? Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing. I said, all right, Lord, if you want me to go here, you make the connection. So about two weeks later, I received a letter from Father Chris, unsolicited, said, we will gladly accept you as a seminary for the Diocese of Bridgeport under these conditions, mm. that you come at your fall break to come meet the diocese and stuff like that and have meetings. And then you, um, during the summer, be stationed in the parish, but for the month of June, you stay at Fisher House for a summer intensive. Okay. Where I took a class on the priesthood with him. He was teaching it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that was a very fun class. He was a tough teacher. Good teacher, but tough. So... And that's the the short story on how I got here. The Lord, I said, okay, Lord, if any part of this journey that you don't want me here, close the door. Because not being from Connecticut or Bridgeport, I don't know anything about this diocese. So it worked out well. The Lord kept opening the doors. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's something we we often underestimate as well, right? The idea that God will continue to open or close doors for us, right? It's not even so much that in our discernment of his will that, oh, it's, it's all interior, right? It, it's, it's rooted interiorly and it has to have that, as you said, I think you said it perfectly, right? There is this underlying peace, right? That this is, I feel God, I feel like this is what you're calling me to do. I feel like this is where I belong. But at the same time, there's external affirmations that have to come as well, right? Whether it's through other people, through friends, through other priests, right? Through, you know, Father Walsh, or you know, at the time, and or or you know that that seminarian or what have you. But it's also the process, right? That that becomes part of our discernment as well, because right is as, as you know what some sometimes we we forget and we we don't always realize is that the 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 man right you're not the only one discerning. Right. The church is discerning with you mm-hmm. and the church is, in a sense, discerning you. Right. Right. And whether or not this is the right place and this is where, uh, you know, I think the best way to put it is, is this where you're going to be set up for success? Right. Uh, and so the, the fact that, OK, there were some roadblocks and some obstacles in terms of pursuing a vocation in Providence, but doors were opening here. In Bridgeport. And so this idea of, okay, there are these external affirmations that then are lining up with this inner peace that you started to feel. I am where I'm supposed to be all through the whole process. Lord, if this is not where you want me to go, shut the door. I have a very Carmelite heart. 
and I actually was very this close to joining the Carmelites, but I could not fill out that application. Yeah, it would. I could just could not fill it out because I knew that that's not where the Lord wanted me. Yeah. And then it's funny at that point, as part of the process of applying to the diocese, we had to mis- visit with a pastor mm-hmm. who was on the av- pastor's advisory council for the vocation board, and three times it was canceled. And finally, it ended up happening on a first Friday, which I have a very strong devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. First Friday at St. Teresa's of the Child Jesus, which I also had a very strong devotion to. And it ended up being first Friday there, and they had adoration in the church. Mm-hmm. I can remember walking into St. Teresa's, Monsignor Louis de Profio, God rest his soul, a priest, priest, yep. excellent man, with his raspy voice, ah, you'll make a good priest here in the Diocese <laughs> of Bridgeport. You got my recommendation. With his big ass, big cigar on the uh, desk, you know, yep. and what a confirmation. St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, who was very part and very um, important in my earlier years, the Carmelite spirituality piece. And then two years later, I was stationed there in the summer at St. Teresa's as a seminarian oh, for two summers. So, like, all fell through, sure. you know, like a domino yeah. effect. Everything came into place. So, when people say, don't ask the Lord for signs, do it. It's a great way for discernment purpose and confirmation. And it was yeah, awesome. And, and, and also too, right, as you said, right, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna pursue this process, Lord. You shut the door, right, if you don't want it. This idea that surrendering ourselves to the will of God doesn't necessarily mean being passive, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that we don't take some sort of action or some concrete steps towards pursuing what what our discernment, what our prayer, guided by the Holy Spirit, guided hopefully by a spiritual director or a wise friend, we, we take concrete steps in that direction, right? It's not all passivity, but it's, okay, I'm going to take these concrete steps, Lord, but if, if things begin to go in a different direction, I'm going to respond to that. And I'm going to respond with generosity of heart to whatever it is that you open up or don't um, in my life. But But you have to be active. You have to actually take those steps because yes, you know, God operates, you know, God never operates without us, right? He, he, he can, but he always wants to make sure that our response is free. Our response is, is total and complete. So um, I think that's a beautiful lesson that you've given us in what that type of surrender looks like and how to, you know, continually pursue God's will. So, so now you've, you've, you've been, you, you, you've made the, the discernment to come to Bridgeport you you begin your formation at at the Fisher residence at the time, and where and you went to Mount Saint Mary's in Emmitsburg, right? Yeah. So talk to me about what the seminary experience was like for you. That's something I think a lot of people don't totally you know. That's that's one of those closed doors, like oh, what, what goes on behind the seminary? So what was what was your seminary experience like? Are you talking about Fisher House or are you talking about Major or both? You know, I would say let's talk a little bit about Fisher because that's gone through some iterations, right? We heard from Father Mike Dunn a few weeks ago on what it was like at the very beginning, right? When Fisher was really just purely kind of a house of discernment under uh, then Monsignor Di Giovanni. And so what was Fisher like during your time there? What was the, the kind of iteration of life at Fisher for you? So it was very, very structured, especially around spirituality and prayer. It made sure that you were under... We're able to budget out the time, forced, of course, but it was a good forcing. Don't get me wrong when I say that. On Lexio Divina, Lexio Meditatio, 
community rosary, and the, obviously the, the hours in common, the bravery in common. So it taught you structure. I'll also introduce you to prayers that you might not have known if you weren't in a seminary-type formation program, like various litanies, like Litany of Christ the High Priest, the Litany of Humility, and things like that. So we, it was a very, very structured program under Monsignor Royal, then it was Father Kevin Royal. And Monsignor Thomas Powers, then Father Thomas Powers was the spiritual director. It was a great house. We had my first year there, we had 17 kids, kids, wow. 17 of us. There was one 18-year-old. Yeah. So everyone else was in their 20s <laughs> and 30s. So, yeah. And then the following year, we went down like 14. Yeah. Um, I was only there for two years because I was two years at Steubenville, two years right. at Fisher House, which is interesting because one thing that I found was you kind of know when a program is meant to be a short program because there's like that right. yearning to move on. So as soon yeah. as being there for two years, I knew it was time to move on. Yeah. I knew that at Fisher House after two years, it was time to move on. And then when I was in major center at Mount St. Mary's, I knew after three and a half years, it's getting time to move on. Sure. You know, being there for four years because then you know it's almost there. But you know that you're getting towards the end of that journey, that chapter. Yeah. Um, but my experience at Fisher House was very good. It was a hectic schedule until it started getting lighter the second year. But the first mm -hmm. year, it was very, very, very rigid in a sure. sense that you didn't have much freedom to do right. a lot of things. It was very much focused on your academics and prayer and spiritual formation and faith formation. Um, but it was very balanced, too. Mm -hmm. And the food was excellent. Yeah. The food was is very good. When you were there? Yes, Marjorie's the cook, and it was oh my gosh, very good food. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the guys in the house, the priests of the house that would come in and out were great too, because it gave great sure. witness. My end yeah. of my second year, my senior Cullen, Peter Cullen, the vicar general and minor of the Kira, moved in with us. Oh wow! Even though he wasn't here very often, but it was still, you know how funny he is. So yeah, it's excellent because he gave like a different light, lighter mood in the house. Yeah, absolutely. You know? absolutely. Yeah. So then what was life like when you transitioned to Mount St. Mary's? I enjoyed it a lot more because there was 140 guys as opposed to 17. Yeah. So it made it a lot easier that if there was, you know, to grow, develop different types of friendships with guys from around the country. Because Mount mm -hmm. St. Mary's had people all the way from the Midwest and all the way down to Louisiana. Right. Um, and anything in between. So it was always nice to be able to get to uh, experience different cultures and yeah. different people from different places and see what's like from other other places really because it's not like i was a traveler um but it was also nice that you could hang out with multiple types of priests sure and seminarians you know because you had a faculty that was diverse from all over the place mm -hmm. you know from all over the united states and including ireland we had a professor from yeah. ireland that moved in so it was great because you had professors from all different types of dioceses both laying in priests and religious, but I'm glad that I went to the Mount because the Mount being attached to a university was able to help me with my learning disabilities with extended time, a proctor, a scribe, note takers for me, um, the ability to use technology to take notes and whatnot, or have someone do it for me. So they had adapted because they were not just a seminary, you had a university where a place like Dunwoody, they're not obligated to assist with people with learning disabilities because they're not a university they're just a seminary you know so being attached to the university was the perfect place for me because i was able to go over to the university side to the learning center there and they took great care of me and the priests of the faculty knew 
what to do. You know, they knew to give me some oral tests, et cetera, like that. And they made the accommodation. So if anyone who's listening to this has learning disabilities and think that they can't get the help that they need, it, we're in a different era now. And there's a lot more stuff now. So if you struggle with academics, it's not a death sentence for you to think about a vocation of the priesthood. You know? Thank you for... Thank you so much for saying that and for sharing that that part of your journey because you, you couldn't be more right. And you know, our the, the seminaries that we send to now, including including Dunwoody, uh, now has has so greatly improved um, their understanding of of academics, their ability uh, to to work with all different kinds of learners, all different uh, you know even even learning disabilities and things like that. Um, and, you know, and, and I would also just say, you know, in that sense, you know, you know, Father, like you're not the only one, uh, you're not the only one whom, whom we've, who, whom we've had both recently and, you know, throughout our time who has, um, has gone through seminary and, and gotten through, uh, with, with the assistance and, and the help of others. It's overcome learning disabilities to work with those and, and to get the accommodations and the help that, that you need. Uh, and thanks be to God, right? Because you're here and you're doing great work. And yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's, that is no, that is not an obstacle. Uh, it is, it is something, it's something we, we, we are prepared for. It's something we absolutely can deal with, something we look forward to, um, you know, in those moments where we need to help someone because it, it's, again, it's a matter of, of we, our goal is, is to set people up for success, right? You know, we don't want to bring someone in and say, you know, oh yeah, just go kind of jump in the deep end, you know, and figure it out. It's, it's a, it's a process of accompaniment, right? Through formation, something that is, has become even more prevalent uh, with the new iteration of, of the, the program for priestly formation um, that has, has just kind of been promulgated. So, so that's great. Thank you for, for sharing that part of your story. And uh, so, you are uh, currently serving, right, as pastor of Holy Family Santa Marie Parish in Fairfield. How long have you been there? Since January 2nd, 2020. Well, great time to, to begin at a parish. Oh, yes. <laughs> that yeah. was an adventure. Yeah. So, and where, where had you served prior to that? So when I was first ordained, I was at St. Stephen's in Trumbull. Mm -hmm. For Actually, I was there kind of for five years. I was there for as a seminarian, as a deacon, and then part of my pastoral year and two years as a priest. Oh, wow. excellent. So from 2009 to 2011, I was there. And then at 2011, I went to the cathedral parish and I was there for five years and then three years at St. Mary's in Ridgefield and now here. Great. Great. And so, you know, I'm sure many of our, uh, our parishioner or many of our listeners are familiar with kind of the general day to day of, of what a pastor in a parish does, but you also have something unique in your ministry, which is your your affiliation and your work with the Encounter School of Ministry, uh, you know, which is, uh, I think, a wonderful, wonderful gift uh, that is coming to the diocese. So could you share a little bit about uh, that ministry, what it is and how that came into into your priesthood? Sure. So starting the fall of 2023, we'll have a Encounter School of Ministry here. It's a two-year program, and it teaches people how to pray. It teaches people how to use the charisms of the Holy Spirit. It teaches people how to pray for healing. It teaches people about their identity as beloved sons and daughters of the Father, how to use the prophetic gifts that St. Paul tells us that to strive for the gift of prophecy and to realize that it has nothing to do with being charismatic. It has to do with our baptism and our identity and claiming our inheritance as beloved sons and daughters of the Father. It's also to equip us to go out and evangelize you know, we get that those buzzwords from St. John Paul II's 
uh, pontificate to Pope Francis is about the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't really know what that means, but when you think about proclaiming the gospel, the writers of the gospel were called evangelists. So it's about sharing the message of the gospel. It's about helping people realize that the Lord is real and he wants to have that deep, intimate relationship with you. That was started at baptism and grows over years, but it also teaches people how to recognize his voice and what way is he going to pray in and through you and how is he going to talk to you? He wants to talk to us. So we teach them how to listen, how to pay attention to the way the Lord wants to highlight in a particular way for that individual. So whether it's through music, art, our own voices in our heads, not out external voices, but internal, and how to recognize that, and also how he talks to us through other people, sure. how he talks to us most especially through the written word, because after all, Jesus is the word made flesh. So whenever we pray with scripture, it has the power to speak to us if we're open to it. So these are the tools in this two-year program that we go through. Also helps people identify lies that we've come to believe. Like, because of my learning disabilities, I'm never going to become a priest. That's a lie. Or because I can't write, I'm not going to be a good priest. That's a lie. Mm. That has to be renounced. Or I'm an idiot because I can't do math. Or I can't write. Or I can't, my mind doesn't recognize when what I studied was changed in the words of taking the test. Mm. You know, I have to, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm dumb. And do it three times and then ask the father well what truth do i need to declare in the name of jesus i'm created in his image and likeness i declare the truth you know or i declare the truth that my mind is being renewed by you O lord you know so these are some of the other things plus healing of memories that are plaguing us traumas and things like that and it just equips people to just to go out there and be christ's hands his eyes his ears his mouthpiece his feet you know sure. saint Teresa of avila's quote about how we are now all those things for people so this is what this school equips so stay tuned sometime during the summer i'm still waiting to get the dates we'll have a summer intensive which goes through the first year all four quarters a tasting of what this is about so identity um claiming our identity healing inner healing and freedom um and the other two chapters right now is kind of slip in my mind because i'm just kind of all over the place That's all right. No, but that sounds great. And that really does. It sounds like exactly what we need. It sounds, um, you know, like a great opportunity for people to encounter the Lord, uh, you know, no pun intended, uh, in a new and, and powerful way that speaks not only to their aspirations, but also speaks, you know, in a little bit to our woundedness and speaks to how God wants to break into the realities of our lives. And even in those places where maybe we feel like we're not worthy of his love, that that's exactly where he wants to meet us and to encounter us and to, to lift us up. So we look forward to that. We look forward to its presence in the diocese and your continued uh, service and, and ministry there. So uh, thank you, you know, Father Sean, for, for, for your, your story. Thank you for being willing to share that with us uh, today. I just want to end as, as I've, as I've, I would say grown accustomed to do, this is only like our third episode, but it's going to become a custom whether we want it to be or not. Uh, just a couple of quick fire questions, just whatever the first thing that comes to your mind uh, is uh, just to help you know our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Who is your favorite saint other than the Blessed Mother? We all love our Blessed Mother. That's, you know, that's that's kind of a foregone uh, thing. Uh, who is your favorite saint? St. John the Beloved, the Apostle, the Evangelist, same Excellent. person. 
And what is your favorite either passage from scripture or scripture story uh, that you, you'd want to share with people? Jeremiah, for I know well the plans I have for you, not for woe or destruction. Excellent. And if you could recommend one prayer or devotion to anyone who is trying to discern God's will in their life, what would you recommend? Hmm. Rapid fire, eh? That one's a stumpy one. The Holy Spirit, because he's the one who guides and directs us and leads us to truth. Yeah. So really, we don't tap into the Holy Spirit enough. Great. Great. And any final words or thoughts, you know, for, for, for our listeners? Anything else you want to you wanna share with them? Never despair. Keep your eyes fixed and focused on Jesus. And always remember that you can go to him and talk to him like you're very close friends to him. Grow into Amen. that relationship with him. Talk to him like we're talking to each other here. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, you know, Father Sean. And we didn't get to it, to it during this, but we will have you back, whether it's for a full episode or just for a little snippet. And we will have an ode to Cardinal Quackers. Uh, because I just I think that's wonderful. And we need, we need to hear more about that. Uh, but thank you again uh, for, for joining us. Thank you for being so open and sharing your story with us. And so uh, for all of our listeners out there, again, thank you for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, remember, you can find uh, the Priest Forever podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like more information on how to discern or more information about the priesthood, you can feel free to find us at bridgeportpriest.org. And you can also follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Bridgeport Priest. So thank you all for joining us and God bless you all. Take care. Thank you, Father. Yeah.